Okay, so let's begin with introductions. My name is Elizabeth Grillo. I'm a professor in the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders at Westchester University. And I would also like Tara McLaughlin to introduce herself. Um, I'm Tara McLaughlin. Um, I'm a first year graduate student. I went to Westchester for my undergrad and um, just started my grad school experience this year. And I am Dr. Grillo's GA too. Excellent. So now I'm so excited to welcome our four panelists. I wanted to share with everybody that this topic of private practice was the most popular topic uh, picked by the first year graduate students to have, you know, focus on a podcast. So let's begin by having them introduce themselves. So uh, Kira, would you like to go first? Tell us your full name. Tell us anything you'd like to share. Sure. Thank you for having me. My name's Kira Ayer. I have been a speech language pathologist for um, almost 17 years. I graduated um, from my master's degree in 2005 and I've been in private practice for 12 years. So um, the first few years of, of that was um, in Virginia where I used to live. And then the last seven years has been here in Pennsylvania. Um, I really enjoy private practice. And at this point I can't imagine working in any other setting. So. I really enjoy it. Excellent. Thank you, Kira. Let's move to Mary-Kate. Hi, my name is Mary-Kate Connolly, and I'm a speech therapist as well. I started my, my practice right in the middle of the pandemic in early 2020, and um, my practice name is Clear Speech, Language, and Hearing. Excellent. How about Jennifer? Hi, I'm Jennifer Metaxas, and my private practice is called Speech and Language for Kids. It's in Wilmington, Delaware. Um, I have been an SLP for about seven years, and I started this private practice in 2018. Excellent. And then Melanie, finally, Mel Melanie. Hi, my name is Melanie Abramowitz, and I also am a private practice owner. My practice is called Speech Starts Here. Uh, we are located in Philadelphia, but we provide in-home therapy and virtual therapy, both in Pennsylvania, um, and New Jersey and virtual therapy also in California. I have over eight years of experience and I have been in private practice for a little over a year now. Wonderful. So let's get started. So one of the ma major questions that the students asked was, how does it work opening a private practice? Considering things such as a business plan, state guidelines and insurance policies, um, talk us through that. And um, I guess we can decide who wants to go first. I, I don't know how, you know, you can raise your hand, you can go ahead and start talking. Um, so to open up a private practice, since I'm licensed in Delaware, my private practice is um, in Delaware, I needed to go through the state of Delaware to get, you know, the business license, I had to get a city business license. Um, I needed to obtain professional liability insurance. And um, since I'm renting an office space, I also needed to take us take the steps to find an office space, sign a lease and, um, you know, start decorate that office and make it ready for kids to come and um, have some speech therapy there. Excellent. Anybody else like to add to what Jennifer said? I can touch on that a little bit too. I think a lot of people think that starting a practice is this big dawning task and kind of like Jennifer was saying, there's, there's, there's a few things that you have to get, but it's not quite as dawning as it may seem. 
Um, I went through the Start Your Private Practice program with Jenna Castro Casbin. Um, you can Google it. She has a nice program that kind of lays everything out for you. And I found that to be super helpful while getting started. Mary Kate, could you give us that reference again? Say, say sure. it again. It's called Start Your Private Practice, and it's by Jenna Castro Casbin. Excellent. Um, does she, is it, do you, do you pay a fee to participate in that? Yeah, so there's there was a one-time startup fee, um, and it's kind of like a go-at-your-own-pace course that you can take, and she has individual steps, and you kind of have to complete the first step before going to the next one, and she has it laid out uh, very, it's very organized, uh, and I found it to be super helpful. How long did it take you to finish the course? I think it might have even taken me like three three months or so, but you could definitely do it faster. I think if you wanted to go all in, um, kind of go at your own pace. Did you do that when you were done with your graduate program? I did, yeah. So I took that, um, it, was, it was after I had been working for a few years when I decided that I wanted to start my practice. I think I just kind of started Googling starting a practice and that popped up and um, it seems like a, a good way to to figure out what to do next because it, it is kind of overwhelming when you first are getting started. Right. Melanie and Kira, would you like to add anything to the how you how you we begin opening a private practice? Sure. I'll uh, talk a little bit about um, as far as like a business plan goes. So when I was first thinking about developing a private practice, I first thought of like what services I'd like to offer and what my specialty areas are. So I do recommend that you kind of assess like what strengths and skills you have and figure out ways in which you can promote those uh, strengths. And then of course, you'll have to decide how you want to attract your clients. I know marketing um, is a big part of the private practice. So I know we'll talk about that later I'm sure as well but you'll also want to consider like other factors such as um, just calculating your living expenses making sure that you have enough um, money set aside to really carry you financially while you're getting your business started um, you'll want to set your rates um, and figure all of that out and also a big part for me was I do accept insurances so I um, spent a lot of time credentialing with different insurance companies um, before I started my private practice. And then um, you'll just want to make sure that you set goals for yourself and you determine how many clients you would need in order to maintain your practice. And just overall, just being organized and keeping good records um, and just continuing to network, I think really helped me get the ball rolling. Excellent. And Melanie, how many clients do you service in your in your practice? So right now I have 20 clients, um, so I'm still small, um, but I just started um, a little over a year ago. So I'm slowly building up and yeah, I, I see clients four days a week. I'm pretty full most days. Um, so yeah, just getting started, I feel like, but off to a good start. That's wonderful. And I think you and somebody, I forget who, maybe it was Jennifer or Mary Kate started during the during COVID. Yeah, I started also, actually, Mary-Kate and I um, both started right around the same time, I think. Is that right, Mary-Kate? Yeah, I think we did. We both kind of, we both left the position we were in together and both kind of started right at, around the same point. So uh, we've been a great connection with each other. We're always bouncing ideas off of each other. 
you you both are so brave and so dedicated to you know take that on good for you um kira would you like to add anything to our first question so the only thing I'd add is um, making sure that you have a really good um, accountant that can guide you through some decisions, especially early on, um, about what kind of business structure you would like. Uh, for many, many years, I uh, just had a sole proprietorship. Um, when I first opened my practice in Virginia, I had a, what you would call a business partner, but we uh, were both sole proprietors who simply shared office space um, and materials. So. Um, as I moved um, away, though, I continued the S Corp uh, in Pennsylvania, but um, I'm sorry, the sole proprietorship, and I have since moved into an S Corp um, tax filing. So, you know, uh, the business aspect uh, can really be helped with the right accountant who can help you make those decisions. Now, do you have all of you, you know, you left graduate school, you started your clinical fellowship. Do you have any words of... Um, words of wisdom for the current graduate students what do you wish that you would have learned about starting a business about a private practice when you were in a graduate program that could inform you know what you're doing now so in other words giving these stu current students kind of you know where do they need to look to kind of get them started if that's where they want to go oh i would say that billing is really important i didn't receive any type of education when i was in graduate school about billing. Um, and I know this might be more um, for clients who want or uh, business owners rather who want to take insurances. But I felt like it was a huge learning curve for me to learn all about um, how to bill and the CPT codes and the, um, you know, the ICD 10 codes and all of that. Um, so if I had a little bit more education, I think in grad school in terms of the billing aspect, I wouldn't have had such a big learning curve in the beginning. Excellent. Kira, you wanted to say something too. I was just going to say that, um, you know, as you finish graduate school and, and look into where you will um, do your clinical fellowships, um, trying to find a place that will uh, encourage you and, and help you grow in the area of specialty that you uh, want to pursue is, is a good idea because you need that experience in order to be able to offer your clients something special and, and something um, more than they can find elsewhere. Excellent. So finding a way to set yourself apart. Mm -hmm. is, is a good way to look at it. Excellent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mary, Kate, and Jennifer, did you want to add anything? I would just kind of jump off of that. I think that great mentorship is really important. And I think it kind of builds your confidence as a clinician too. Um, having somebody that you can go to and ask questions and um, kind of build those skills while you're uh, just starting out is really important. Would you suggest a mentor in private practice? I think that that's a great idea. Yeah. Um, I think that sometimes mentors look different in that. Like I had mentioned before, Melanie and I kind of connect and there's there's other private practitioners that I think it's sometimes it's more of a peer mentor, just being able to reach out and network um, rather than having somebody kind of overseeing what you're doing. Excellent. Jennifer, did you want to add? Yeah, and in terms of networking, um, I actually am networking with an occupational therapy th place that's in my state and we bounce ideas off of each other all the time and I think you know we're not really we can work together because we can even share clients sometimes and things and we can bounce ideas on how to grow and so I think that that is something that um, you can also look into. 
Excellent. Tara, did you want to ask the next question? Sure. Um, what does the typical day look like in private practice? For me, the, the day um, starts really um, busy and early. I have a lot of uh, you know, I serve mostly children and young adults, and I have a lot of kids who want to come in early before school or before their parents are at work. Um, and then I often have a pretty quiet midday. So, um, you know, I've been able to fill in the gaps by obtaining contracts for um, cyber therapy, or um, you could, you know, contract out some hours for early intervention or, the, or you know, uh, another setting if you need to. Um, but it can be quite in the middle of the day during little kids naps or during the school time um, hours. But after school is when I'm really busy and in the evening. So uh, I try to plan the night before, have everything set out in my office, ready to go um, so that I can start right away as soon as my kids get on the bus to go to school and uh, get my workday started then. Yeah, for us, um, we offer teletherapy, therapy in your home, and also therapy at the office. So um, I have various speech language pathologists that work for my private practice, and some just go into homes, some just do teletherapy, and some just go into the office. So it varies depending on what setting they are in. So my clinician that goes into the office, she comes in and prepares for her day and families come in and they receive typically either a 30 or 45 minute session. Um, and that's how it works for the office setting. For the in-home setting, the therapist would drive to, this, to the client's home and do therapy at their house and then drive to the next home and do therapy there. The teletherapy setting, you can do at your house. Um, so there are clinicians that prefer that. And it's interesting because each speech therapist has their own preference on what they would prefer. Um, so I've, I found that to be really interesting. Excellent. For so me, I am, oh, go ahead, Mary oh, Kate. Go ahead, Melanie. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. So I was going to um, offer my perspective as a home-based therapist, just to piggyback off of that. Um, so I travel a lot. So my days are spent really mostly in the road driving from client to client. Um, and really every day is different. So I think working as a private practice owner really allows for flexibility with scheduling. So I can plan my days to be as busy as I want or as open as I'd like. Um, but I do need to work around the client's schedules as well. Um, so some days my first appointment is as early as eight o'clock in the morning, but some days I don't start until 10. Um, and some days I have back-to-back -back appointments all day and other days I might have some breaks in between. Um, but I do work pretty late hours because most of my clients are school age, so they need to be seen after school, um, which I'm sure everyone else here could probably relate to that. Um, but between driving and direct therapy time, um, I work probably on average like two days a week for six hour days and then two days a week, eight and a half hour days. Um, and then I go home and I do billing and session notes at the end of each day. So it kind of depends. I feel like every day is different. And then for me, my practice um, is still somewhat part-time at this point. So I have a part-time job in an ABA classroom that I work a few days during the week. 
And then I have a brick and mortar where I, I go and I'll um, see clients after school hours um, all in one place. So I'm able to see kids back to back, which is nice. Um, and then, but, but every day looks different, kind of uh, like Melanie was saying, hours vary. So some days I'm working from eight until seven at night. And then other days I work like a half a day on Fridays. I'm only there for four hours. So every day is different. How do you feel about uh, private practice in terms of a work-life balance? Do you, you know, it sounds like all of you, at least at one point, worked for somebody else, you know, whether it's in a school or a medical setting, you're now all, you know, transitioning or you're in your total 100% private practice. What's the work-life balance in this setting versus, versus, is it a good, is it, are there pros and cons? So I think it depends on how far along in your private practice journey you are, because I could tell you only a little over a year in, I probably work more now than I'm hoping to work in the future. <laughs> um, because, you know, I am relatively new and I find myself there's, you know, there's always things to do. Um, and I need to work on kind of streamlining things, I think a little bit more, I'm kind of starting from scratch, whereas um, in a few years, I feel like I maybe will have a system going and I won't spend as much time doing other things. But I do um, leave one day a week where I devote to like my administrative duties. So I will see clients four days a week. And then on Fridays, I leave that day to do paperwork, report writing, um, billing, and scheduling makeups if I need to, things like that. Um, and I really try to only work during the week. So I leave my weekends for time for myself. Um, but like I said, being a new business owner, I do find myself working a little bit more than I'd like to lately. <laughs> Yeah, it makes sense. You know, you're you're getting this off the ground, so it makes sense you put the time in now, and hopefully you can you know pull back as as it becomes more solid and firm. Kira and Jennifer, it sounds like you've been in the business longer. Maybe you can talk about you know the evolution of your work life balance. Jennifer, did you want to go first? Sure. So when I first started, it was just me, and I was seeing all of the clients, and so it was it was a lot, and then. I had my baby in October of 2020 and I had a caseload and I had to do something, right? So I hired um, someone for my maternity leave. And at that time it was October, 2020. So teletherapy was what everyone was doing. So she did teletherapy while I went on maternity leave and she actually stayed on with me at the private practice. And she's my go-to teletherapy clinician. And once I forced myself to hire someone on because I had to, I realized how nice it was to hire someone on. <laughs> so then I hired a few more people and it kind of just spiraled that way. And I think once I hired more people and had people helping as well, it really helped with my work-life balance. And I have, you know, now I have a one-year-old at home and I want to spend time with him and I'm able to do that because of the private practice while still having a good, I have a great work-life balance and, you know, I can still make decent money mm -hmm. while being home with my, my child, so. Excellent. So you are an employer as well. Yes. Mm -hmm. How does that work? How do, do you pay, do you handle benefits? Do you pay an hourly rate? What do you do? Um, so all of my therapists are independent contractors, so no one's full-time. So it's an hourly rate and they don't have 
it benefits because they're not full-time employees. Or right, right. So. Excellent. Okay, Kira, let's hear from you. Sure. So the first few years of private practice, I'd say at least the first three years, I worked a lot, um, kind of like what <laughs> Melanie was saying. I, um, But I also wanted to work a lot. Um, you know, I lived in a different state than, you know, where I'd gone to school and where I grew up. And um, I really enjoyed it. And I had a really good uh, business partner to work uh, through things with. And um, so I worked a lot of evenings and a lot of hours. Um, but then, you know, I had three kids in five years and I uh, had to change things a little bit. Um, I started working more around my husband's schedule. I started doing some, you know, just evenings and Saturdays for a little while. Um, but now that my kids are in school full time, um, I've been able to balance back the other way, you know, uh, and and add hours um, and and grow my practice again um, after having contracted a little bit um, for the for the years I wanted to be home part time. Um, so for me, the work balance is really good. I at the beginning of every school year, I I uh, try to be really strict with myself and decide how many hours um, I should work and how many evenings I'm willing to uh, give up at home. So I, I've tried to be um, better about that and, and deciding uh, that upfront instead of just taking on more and more people as they call and, and then being overwhelmed. So for me, work balance, uh, life balance at this point is much easier than it was in the beginning. Excellent. I love the flexibility of you know the private, pra private practice option. And frankly, the flexibility in our profession is just amazing. I mean, that's one of the main reasons what attracted me to speech language pathology. I'm sure everybody in this mm -hmm. podcast would agree with me. But then you have additional flexibility when you have your own business, right? You're able to do your own hours. It could be part-time. It could be full-time. That is such an advantage. Um, so Tara, I'm going to turn it over to you for the next question. So what are the pros and cons of working for a private practice during your clinical fellowship? I can't speak to that particularly, but I did create my practice at a relatively young age. So I was about two years post uh, my CF. And I think on like kind of a related note, I think I would just want to instill confidence in those, uh, those people who are interested in that, because I think we can kind of have a little bit of imposter syndrome and start to think that we're not qualified. Um, and you really do know so much more coming out of grad school than, than I think you give yourself credit for. Um, like we had talked about earlier, I think it's so important to have a good mentor um, if, you're, if you're doing that so that you, you have somebody kind of looking out for you and you would absolutely need to have a supervisor during that time. Um, but I think that there's kind of always, there's always something to learn um, in our field. And so nobody really is coming out knowing everything. Like you can be 15 years in our field and still not know everything. Um, and so don't feel like you're the only one who's, who's kind of feeling that way, because I think people with so many, so many years of experience feel that way. Um, and I would just encourage you to use the practice to kind of learn and, um, and grow in those areas that maybe you don't feel as confident in. Anybody else have, have you, as a business owner, have you taken on a CF? Would you consider doing that? Or, you know, what are your thoughts about doing a clinical fellowship um, in a private practice? I did. Oh, go ahead. Oh, oh go ahead. Sorry. No, you're good, Jennifer. Go ahead. Oh, I, I actually did 
of my clinical fellowship in a private practice, but it was a very big private practice where there were lots of clinicians there. So I was able to bounce ideas off of other people that were working there. I was one of three clinical fellows that were working for this private practice. So it was a really good experience because I got to see how private practice actually works and get my feet into it a little bit before I realized, okay, this is something that I feel like I can do myself. So that was that's also a, a way that you can go if you're interested in private practice, just trying it out and seeing how you like it. Um, yeah, I like the idea of, um, you know, like you're suggesting, Jennifer, Jennifer having multiple uh, clinicians that you can learn from. That's so valuable. Wherever the students decide to go for their clinical fellowship, that is a really valuable experience. That was an experience I had as well. I was so lucky that I had um, so many other clinicians I could bounce things off of rather than just, just, a, just my one mentor. So that's a real advantage. Um, Jennifer, do you see any cons in doing a clinical fellowship in a private practice? Yeah, I feel like there most private practices aren't huge. So if you're in a small private practice, it might just be hard to learn from other people. So I would just advise if you're planning on doing a private practice for your clinical fellow, try to find a big one with lots of resources. Excellent. Cool. Kira, did you want to add something too? That's exactly what I was going to say is it's hard um, to take on a CF uh, when uh, your uh, schedule is so flexible for your own schedule. It can be kind of hard to offer the right kind of hours for a CF. Um, however, uh, I was going to say the same about finding a very large practice, for example, in this area, something like a TheraPlay place or EBS or, or something where there are many uh, different uh, clinicians that you can um, you can learn from. And then also cancellations can be um, an issue in private practice. So um, finding a, a place where you'd have a, a good full schedule um, is ideal. Excellent. Melanie, did you want to add anything? So I started my private practice um, seven or eight years after my clinical fellowship. So I can't offer too much insight onto what that would look like. Um, but I do think, um, you know, everyone's journey is different. So as a CF, you are working under the supervision of a licensed speech language pathologist. So if you wanted to either start your private practice during your clinical fellowship. Um, as long as you have a supervisor and the caseload to support it, I would say that it's possible. Um, but I, for me, I personally felt like it was beneficial for me to gain experience first um, before jumping right into private practice. Um, so yeah, an option would be to then try to find a private practice for your clinical fellowship that you could maybe work for first, um, or just, you know, recommend, I would recommend getting experience just in a variety of different settings with different populations too. I think that would be really helpful. Excellent. That kind of leads into the next question, which is um, what populations do you all work with? It sounds like most of you are working with children, young adults, maybe, um, maybe, maybe there's um, other populations we haven't touched on yet. So Let's talk about that next. So I actually uh, specialize in working with the deaf and hard of hearing population. Um, I am also a certified auditory verbal therapist. 
So I work with actually both children and adults with hearing loss, uh, many of which who use cochlear implants or hearing aids. Um, so that's my primary specialty. Um, I did uh, receive uh, the certification as a listening and spoken language specialist, which is an additional three to five year certification from the AG Bell Academy um, to specifically specialize with this population. And I have been essentially devoting my entire career ever since I graduated uh, grad school um, to working with children and adults with hearing loss. Um, but I also see children with a variety of other disorders. Um, I would say other specialties of mine would be literacy disorders, speech sound disorders, and just general receptive expressive language delay. Wow, wonderful. What a way to set yourself apart, Melanie. Yeah, I mean, the listening and spoken language specialty certification is definitely very rare in our field. Mm -hmm. And um, there's not a whole lot of people around the area who have that certification. So I find that most of my clients actually, um, in the beginning, it was hard to, to find where those specific clients were. But now once they found me, um, the bulk of my caseload right now is all hearing loss, which I just absolutely love. <laughs> Excellent. And I'm sure your marketing materials, you know, that's probably front and center for you, you know, to highlight your unique specialty. That's wonderful. And the name of her practice is Speech Starts Here, H-E-A-R. Yes, exactly. So Very clever. Words there. Yes. <laughs> Very clever. I like that. Um, so anybody else, what other populations do you all work with? I actually work with a very similar population just because we both worked together in that setting previously. Um, I also have a hearing loss myself, so that kind of drives my passion for working with that population. Um, but I mostly work with pediatrics. Um, I also see some adults with hearing loss and do oral rehabilitation with them, um, but that's the only adult population I see. And then, you know, I work with fluency, social language, auditory processing. Um, and then a lot of them are speech sound disorders. Excellent. Kieran, Jennifer, Kira, you want to go next? Sure. So I work with children um, from toddler age through young adulthood. Um, I generally um, refer out fluency disorders, um, babies. I do get a lot of calls, but I, I refer them out. Um, and uh, my specialties are speech sound disorders, apraxia of speech, um, language disorders and um, I'm beginning uh, some additional certification in orofacial myology. So those are my main areas of interest and I would say more than half my caseload is speech sound disorders at this time. So, um, so that's where I pursue, you know, extra training and, and things too. Excellent. Awesome. Jennifer. And my private practice is all pediatrics and I work with a variety of speech and language disorders, including speech sound disorders, receptive, expressive, and pragmatic language disorders, childhood apraxia of speech, autism, and, and fluency as well. Excellent. Do you find, I mean, you all are going to know private practice obviously more than, than I do. Do you find that it's more common to have pediatric-based private practice business owners versus adult, or does it, does it, you know, what do you see more of with work? Go ahead, Mary-Kate. I will say I get a lot of calls from people who are looking for adult services, and it's very hard to find people with practices that are, are accepting clients at this time. So I think there is definitely in our area, in the Philadelphia area, uh, that there's a higher number of pediatric private practices. 
Yeah, so students hear that there's a need for consideration for, for adult clients in private practice. Kira, Jennifer, Melanie, would you add to that? I think yeah. what drives the fact that there are very few adult private practices is um, needing to work with um, insurance and Medicare. So there are a lot of rules that um, a small private practice owner might have a really hard time being able to work with and um, making a, a full, a, you know, financially, uh, you know, sound uh, caseload with. So I think that that's why there is a, a, a lack of uh, adult-based uh, private practices. Interesting. I mean, you know, if, so if you decide to do an adult private practice, you know, you could decide to bill insurance or Medicare or whatever, but you could also say, um, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, bill for services out of pocket, but then you have to have the adult who's willing to do that, you know, pay, 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 pay the fee without going to insurance. Right. So we, yeah. Yes. I was just going to say, so I accept Medicare, but if I were to not take Medicare, I would not be legally allowed to see any clients who have Medicare. I so see. we are right. not allowed to accept private pay from any client that has Medicare. So there okay. are some, yeah, some uh, laws and, and regulations that we have to abide by. So Melanie, that's because your practice accepts Medicare, is that why? So we, we accept Medicare, um, so I'm able to see clients with Medicare, but um, even if I, if I did not take Medicare at all, I would not be allowed to accept private pay. Okay. So, Yes. That's even correct. if a even if a, a private practice is private pay only and they don't take any insurances, if an adult came to them who had Medicare, they would not be allowed to accept private pay from them. Oh wow. Okay, that's, that's a big that's a big thing to know, students. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> has, this, has, this al has this always been the case? Yeah, as so far as I know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh, wow. it it's um listed. You could find more information about Medicare on ASHA. Um, they have a ton of resources about Medicare, but there's all sorts of like guidelines and, and things you'll want to research because it is quite complicated. And right. I don't always understand the reasoning behind it. It seems kind of silly to me when um, I was first starting and I would have a Medicare client call me and say that they would be willing to pay out of pocket. And I told them, sorry, you're not allowed. Um, so it gets a little complicated. Yeah, I mean, no wonder why, like Kira said, no wonder why, or I think Mary-Kate said this as well, there aren't as many private practices service, servicing adults. There you go. That's right. Jennifer, did you want to add something? Yeah, I mean, I don't know of very many private practices that specialize with adults, and I bet it's for that reason, um, yeah. not having all those extra laws and regulations, so... Yeah, that seems like a major hole to me. That's bothering me, but okay, we I have to just have to live there and be okay with that right now. <laughs> um, so, uh, what what are some advantages and disadvantages you have experienced working in private practice? I would say Medicare right now, to me, seems like a major just because I work with adults. You know, that's my primary practice interest, so that's a major uh, disadvantage for me. So, what other advantages and disadvantages do you see in this setting? Um, I love the sense of ownership and the flexibility that comes with it. I love the independence that comes with having a private practice, but a con of that, a disadvantage would be with more, more of that independence, 
there is less, if you have a small private practice, less collaboration with other professionals. So if you're in a school, for example, there are so many people that are constantly surrounding you that you could always bounce ideas off of. And at a private practice, it's a little bit harder to do something like that. Mm -hmm. I would completely agree. I think those are probably my exact same advantages and disadvantages. Um, because I am, you know, used to working as a team. And sometimes I do miss having that support and collaboration with others. Um, but I like Mary Kate said earlier, you know, um, we can always call I have so many great SLPs that I can always reach out to if I need support. And in the beginning, when I first opened my private practice, I actually reached out um, to other private practices in the same area and built up a little referral network um, and referral list. And I think that's been really huge because we I'm still in contact with a lot of them um, up until this point today. And if I ever have questions, I can always reach out to them. And like I refer clients to them, they refer clients to me. So that's been really great. Um, but as, and as, as far as an advantage, I would say, um, Two, you're not uh, always driven by an IEP, um, where I feel like in the schools, um, you really had strict rules or guidelines. And whereas private practice, you can really incorporate goals that are important to the client and the family and just provide really more specialized care in that regard. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Kira, would you like to offer advantages, disadvantages? Sure. So I, I agree. You can offer much more individualized, personalized services. Um, and uh, I've always appreciated the 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 longer term relationships and the, the closer relationships you can have with clients and their families. Um, that's certainly then very motivating um, for uh, carryover at home. And um, I really like just being able to also choose the um, the the type of uh, client I, I like to want to work with. Um, disadvantages are uh, scheduling <laughs> cancellations. Those are, those are uh, tricky things. And for many years, tax time was a big headache un until I got a, a much better system in place so that I wasn't doing it all, um, all the paperwork in January and February. So, um, you know, uh, for a while that, that was, that was hard. Um, but for me, uh, the advantages definitely outweigh any disadvantage. Excellent. Mary-Kate, did you want to add anything? Sure. Um, I think everybody kind of touched on a lot of those advantages already. Um, I love the flexibility of it and being able to take a vacation if I want to take a vacation and not have to wait for the end of the school year to come around. Um, I also really love working alongside the parents in this setting. Um, I think it's a great way to kind of coach and mentor, and I see so much more success with my students because the parents are able to take what we're working on in our session over into their home life. Um, as far as disadvantages for me, I'm a single woman. And so this setting kind of gives a lot of variable income. Um, and so being like the sole provider for myself is, uh, you know, I always have to be really conscious of what is coming in and what is going out each month. Um, and especially with this year and, you know, who knows, like with COVID, there's lots of cancellations. I think a lot of people are hesitant, even at the slightest sniffle to come in or to, to do a session. Um, telehealth really helps combat that, but it's, it doesn't always work out. So it, that's just something to keep in mind.
but absolutely the advantages outweigh the uh, disadvantages. Excellent. So we talked a little bit about billing. We talked about CPT codes, um, ICD codes, and I, we actually talk a little bit about that in my medical speech language pathology class. I know that some of those students are here and some of those terms should sound familiar. Um, so maybe and we talked a little bit about Medicare. Maybe, Melanie, you can talk first about what is that process like to become a Medicare provider? Is that is that really involved? Did it take a while to get there? You've only been in practice for a year. What was that process like? And then we can talk about the rest of you, how you all deal with billing. Yeah, so um, you need to be credentialed with each insurance that you would like to take. Um, so you would have to fill out an application to um, get a contract with that insurance company. Um, I actually ended up hiring a credentialing company to help me with that process um, because it was very overwhelming in the beginning to have to um, navigate starting a private practice in addition to getting credentialed with all of these insurance companies. Um, but I will say it does take a very long time, um, especially because I also started in the middle of the pandemic. So um, everything was kind of delayed because of that as well. But it took, I wanna say almost six months before I had my first insurance contract and then they all started coming in shortly after that. Um, Medicare was the quickest actually to come back. That usually um, is only like about, if you do everything right, it should really only take maybe two weeks at the, at the most. Um, but the other companies, it really depends. Um, they usually give you a time frame like it could take up to 120 calendar days, um, if not more, to get credentialed with some of these companies. Wow, that was smart. You thought about hiring a credentialing agency to help with that aspect of the business. Uh, Kira, Jennifer, and Mary-Kate, how do you all handle billing? So I've been private pay for 12 years. Um, you can do that um, depending really on um, the type of clients you attract um, and the area you serve. Um, but for me, it um, has worked very well. It keeps um, my life a lot simpler. <laughs> um, and, uh, but you could use an, like an EMR to help you streamline that process. Um, I simply just send bills at the end of every day um, to my clients. And um, it, it's, it's worked for me to just provide super bills uh, for some of the uh, parents to get out of network reimbursement for their children's services, depending on their coverage. Mm -hmm. So do you base, and this is for everybody, do you base your fee, do you, do you base it a little bit on the CPT codes? How do you, the, what you're billing, how do you decide what the fee is going to be? This is for anybody. Yeah, so, well, because I accept insurance, it might be a little different for me versus everyone else, but um, I base my rates on the CPT codes versus um, by session or by time, um, because I have to charge the same rate to my private pay clients as I would to my insured clients. Okay. And the CPT uh, codes that we bill for are untimed. Most of them for speech therapy are untimed. So if I had a separate rate for 30 minutes that I would for an hour, then that would not work with the way that you bill insurance. So my sessions range from 30 minutes, 45 minutes to 60 minutes, but I bill 
by the session versus the time, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, and for students who don't know, I'm sorry, I'm, we're throwing around these terms. EMR stands for electronic medical record. I think Kira said that CPT stands for current procedural terminology. So if you just go into ASHA.org and Google, uh, well, while well, you're on ASHA, search <laughs> CPT codes. There's a whole, they do a wonderful job, I think, of kind of describing what they are and they update those schedules once a year, usually. So the new 2022 codes are up there now uh, on the ASHA website, so you can learn more about that. Um, Jennifer and Mary-Kate, did you want to add for billing? I'm also private pay, so I do not go through insurance. And since I have independent contractors, they give me their client logs at the end of the month and I bill the families at the end of the month when I get their logs. So that's how I personally deal with billing and it's been effective for my private practice. And is your rate based on time or is it based on what Melanie's kind of doing? Since I do not go through insurance, mine is I have a different rate for a 30 minute right. session and a different rate for a 45 minute session. Okay, so you're doing time. Kira, are you doing time too? Same thing, and, and for the same uh, reason as yeah. Uh, Jennifer, yeah. Do you bill uh, certain disorders different differently, or no? Every so it's totally time based. Interesting. Okay, Mary Kate, what do you do? I'm private pay as well. Um, I also do timed rates, uh, and you know, I just kind of, I guess, for you were asking earlier how you came up with the rates. For me, I did a little bit of research on the CPT codes, but also just looking at other practices in the area. Right. Some of them will post their rates. Not everybody does. I don't, um, but some people do, and you can kind of get a feel for what the going rate is in your area. Yeah, good idea. It's different in different areas. It's very different from New York City to Philadelphia to like Alabama. Right. Yeah, it makes sense. So knowing the area makes sense. Uh, Tara, did you want to ask the next next question? Um, how do you advertise your private practices? So I find that establishing relationships with referral sources is a, a big deal, you know, if uh, depending on what your um, ideal caseload looks like, you, you might want to uh, have a good relationship with some local orthodontists or pediatricians, um, ear, nose, and throat doctors, audiologists. So um, they're a really good referral source, um, which can help spread the word about your practice. Um, you can offer screenings to, uh, you know, private preschools or private schools. Um, I've in the past offered uh, screenings to homeschool groups, um, which uh, I really like doing. I think it's a, an underserved population that um, they in turn uh, offer me uh, an opportunity to uh, see kids um, for therapy during the school day. Um, and then uh, word of mouth after all these years is the most important thing, you know, happy parents, uh, lead you to other parents that want your services. Um, and then I always offer a free 15 minute phone call to, um, you know, to kind of get to know uh, what a parent is looking for and then to see if it's a fit um, for both the child and uh, for your practice. And, and that is, um, that's a big uh, way to get new clients as well. Excellent. Jennifer, did you want to go next? Sure. So I'm listed on Google, so when people Google speech therapy and kids, I'll pop up in my area. So I think that's really important. I think I get the majority of my calls through Google. 
I also get calls through word of mouth. So again, like what you just said, happy parents talk about it and you'll get referrals that way. I also have some social media accounts, which I think help attract business. So I have a Facebook, I have an Instagram, and I also made a TikTok. Since I have a little one at home, I just do strategies with my one-year-old, um, just little language tips that you can do with your kid every day. And um, I posted that. And so all of that put together, I think, attracts business. That's a really good idea. Yes, I, I'm also a business owner as well. And um, I have social media is the biggest like issue for me. <laughs> so, you know, just, you know, you're supposed to post like daily and it's like, ah, you know, I, I can barely get once a week. So it, social media is a challenge for me. But with this generation, with these students, that's not the case, may, potentially the case. You know, this is kind of like second nature to the students. I wish I had more of that natural ability to want to, you know, be more active in social media. I have to force myself to do that. Um, so I think that the current student, you have, have a major advantage over, over my generation, for example. Um, Mary Kate, would you like to add anything for how you advertise? Yeah, I mean, I, I use social media a little bit too. I wouldn't say it's the bulk of where, where I'm using or getting referrals. Um, so I don't spend a whole lot of time on there, to be honest, anymore. In the beginning, I had more of a presence. And I think if you go and you look it up, you can still see that I'm on there. And so it looks like a working business, but that's not where I'm getting most of my referrals. So I, I kind of stopped posting quite as much on there. Um, a lot of times I'm getting um, searches from Google ads. I think that's my biggest referral source. Um, and then when I first started out, I was going and networking with a lot of the area doctors and daycares. And that has also been super helpful. I, I just kind of made up little flyers, uh, used some basic word art things and, and put those out there. And they have been really helpful. And even some of the daycares have been so nice to let me keep a stack of the flyers right in the entrance so that when parents come and pick up their kids from school, they see that they're able to take it home. You know, if that's something that they're interested in. Yeah, that's very smart. When I go to the pediatrician's office for my girls, I see, you know, that's, I see those flyers front and center. I'm like, ooh, who is this speech language pathologist? But yeah, that's really smart. Melanie, did you want to offer anything? Sure. Uh, so I think uh, advertising and getting referrals is definitely a lot harder than you would think. Um, it takes a while to build up a caseload and opportunities don't necessarily just fall into your lap. Um, so I have done a variety of different advertisements in the beginning. Um, I sent out postcards, social media posts. I did some paid advertisements. Um, also like merchandise with my logos, like just to name a few things. But I do uh, think that most people have found me through Google, like most people have been saying, um, or by word of mouth. Um, I also think Facebook mom groups have been a huge referral source for me because um, my name will get mentioned in those groups or if someone posts something like I'm looking for a speech therapist, um, I can kind of comment and leave my information. But um, yeah, I would say just networking, getting yourself out there um, and just talking to people and letting them know what you do and why you do it. And I think having that specialty area is definitely key as well. Yeah. Excellent. Um, so does any, do any students have any questions that they would like us to ask that we haven't asked? You're welcome to unmute and ask. You're welcome to put it in the chat. 
So I, I have a question. It's about HIPAA. Uh, how do you remain HIPAA compliant? Like, I guess, because I know there's different, like some systems aren't HIPAA compliant and some are, because like I work for a private practice as a receptionist. So we use like, I think it's called Practice Perfect and like for all the client records. So like, I'm just wondering like, how do you, like what systems you use and how do you remain HIPAA compliant within those systems? Yeah, so I, I use an electronic medical record system um, called Simple Practice. So it's probably similar to what you were describing, um, but it's all HIPAA compliant. So all of my intake paperwork for new clients is documented digitally in there. That's where I do my billing. I do my invoices, um, do my progress notes. Everything goes into there. Um, and then clients can also message me securely through there as well. Um, so that's kind of my way to keep everything HIPAA compliant. Um, I also use a credit card transaction system called Ivy Pay. That's also HIPAA compliant. And that's how I accept payments. Um, I, my email address is HIPAA compliant. You can get a business Google email address that is HIPAA compliant if you just do a few extra steps with that. Also with my fax machine, I have um, a virtual fax machine, but you can get a HIPAA compliant fax machine as well. Um, I just had a question of uh, if you like worked in another private practice, um, did you like want to always do private practice or did you always want to make your own or start your own private practice? That's a I, good I always wanted to start a practice even right from the start when I was like very first in uh, college, even when I was like in my undergrad program, but I didn't think that I would do it at this point. I definitely thought that it would be like 20, 30 years down the road. Um, and I think just, you know, the pandemic kind of expedited things and made me rethink like what I really wanted my life to look like and um, just kind of make some changes and make some adjust adjustments. Uh, Kira, I think you wanted to say something. Yeah, so I worked in um, a larger private practice uh, for three years early on in my career and uh, really didn't see myself um, opening my own practice because I was really happy with uh, how things were going. Um, but I remember the owner's uh, husband telling me one day, oh, I just know that you'll be opening your own practice, you know, one day eventually. And I, I didn't think much of it. And the next year um, that practice closed. So um, I then had the opportunity. They told me that I could, um, you know, just go ahead and take over the phone number, take over the client list. And uh, so I had a ready-made, very full-time practice uh, to start. So um, it kind of just happened and it happened very fast, but um, I've never looked back and uh, really appreciated that opportunity. I always knew I wanted to do private practice ever since I was in grad school. And um, I think for a while in my career, I stepped away from private practice, but I always found myself coming back to it. So I'm glad I'm finally doing it full-time and um, doing what I love. I have a question. Um, is there one thing with your practice that you wish that you had done sooner? Um, or is there a different direction that you wish that you went instead of maybe the direction you're going? That might be a bit of a diff more difficult question. Um, but in terms of like, if there was pivots that you wish you had done or differences, what is what do those look like uh, for you now? 
a tough question, I think. <laughs> I mean, I, I could say that I'm happy that I decided to take insurance. Um, I know that that's different for everyone else's practice. Um, I think starting out private pay was challenging for me to find clients um, and opening up um, the insurance aspect really opened a lot of doors for me. Um, I do have a lot of clients that are still private pay, but it allows me to have more flexibility in who I can treat. Um, so I don't know if that's necessarily an answer to your question, but yeah, like I, I like that I chose to accept insurance maybe early on. I, I started out right away with a brick and mortar, like before I even had clients. And I think if I could go back, I wouldn't have done that because there were probably two or three months where I didn't have a single person and I was paying for this space. And I had this cute little office that I was so proud of, but nothing <laughs> to show for it really. So, um, but now it's been great. Like it, it paid off in the end, but I think I probably would have waited a little bit until I kind of started that. Does anybody have any other questions for our panelists? I had a quick question about teletherapy. Um, do you use, how do you remain HIPAA compliant with teletherapy? Is there, do you use Zoom or is there a, a company that you outsource that to? With my electronic medical record system, they do offer a teletherapy platform. However, I don't use that one because I don't like it as much as the Zoom. Um, I actually use, it's called Secure Video, and it's a HIPAA compliant platform that connects through Zoom. But Zoom recently came out like a few months ago with um, their own HIPAA compliant platform that is definitely more uh, reasonably priced than they originally had because in the beginning of the pandemic, they only offered like their big package plans um, that weren't very feasible for small businesses. But I do believe now they, they offer a HIPAA compliant, um, more reasonable package. But I don't know what other people are using, but I use Secure Video. So during the pandemic, um, I went through three different uh, ways of providing teletherapy, um, but I end up with what Melanie's talking about, the um, HIPAA compliant Zoom. I just found it much more reliable and uh, it was a lot easier to use the materials that I wanted to use through that platform. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's what I was familiar with as well. I felt like I had some sort of... Um, familiarity with it. So I stuck with that and just used the HIPAA compliant version. Mm -hmm. Me as well. Any other I'm questions from the student? Go ahead, Jamie. Sorry, Dr. Girl, I have another question. Oh. And this is um, for, for Jennifer. Um, when did you get to a point where you were ready to bring independent contractors on? Was there a, was that the goal from the very beginning? Or did you reach a point where you're like, I think I can manage this now and it's time for me to continue to build? Yeah, at the very beginning, I didn't really think about hiring anyone on. When I had my baby and I had to go on maternity leave, it kind of forced me to think about that in a way. So the months leading up to when my baby was born, I really thought about it and, you know, just wanted to go instead of full-on employee, I found that to be pretty overwhelming. I just started with an independent contractor. Um, that was a little bit more straightforward. 
And I, at that point was, if I didn't have this baby, I probably would not have hired on. So I'm so thankful that I pushed myself to do that. I think there's always little things in private practice where you get challenged and you find ways to push yourself. And at that point in time, that's what I had to do. And I had to make a decision. Do I just tell these families to take a break for a few months and maybe they won't come back? Or do I risk, you know, taking a independent contractor on and seeing how that goes. I'm so glad I did. So glad. Does anyone have any other questions? Well, this has been really awesome. What a wonderful discussion. I appreciate all four of you for being so open and, you know, with your communication and it was just, it was just wonderful. What a wonderful experience. And again, thank you for your time. Thank and you. yes, yes, I'm thank so happy that much. Thank you. And this will be on our website eventually. I'll share the link with you when it's there and it'll be on uh, Spotify in January.